Thank you, Paul. I do want to say uh, how much we appreciate the work that you and your music team did in the program on Monday night. Uh, you enabled our worship uh, to be one that was thrilling to our hearts. I thank God for the gifts he's given to you and the heart that he's given to you to use those gifts for his glory in such a magnificent way. Amen? Do you agree with that? I don't know about you, but Johnny Hart is one of my favorite cartoonists. He has a way of saying things very succinctly, and I think it's today's cartoon that was handed to me this morning uh, from B.C. I won't take time to read to you the whole strip, but the first two frames are, are just marvelous. There are two ants that are talking on a hill, and the one ant says, Who is Jesus, Dad? Daddy ant says, He's the reason for the season. The little ant says, I thought Santa was the reason. And Daddy Ant responds, He is, if you prefer Nintendo to everlasting life. <laughs> Says it pretty well, doesn't it? We've been looking together at the names with Christmas glory from the Gospels. And this morning we're going to turn again to the Gospel of Luke in the second chapter. To the 11th verse once more as well. The words of the angel to the shepherds in the fields outside of Bethlehem. Luke 2, verse 11. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. He is Christ the Lord. There are some folks who are surprised to learn that Christ is not Jesus' family name that he was not born, in fact, to Mr. and Mrs. Joseph Christ. The name Christ is actually a title. It is a Greek word that represents the Hebrew word Mashiach, or Messiah, as we say it in English. Whether you say Christ or Messiah, the meaning is the same. It is the Anointed One, the Anointed One. The whole of the Old Testament. Do I need to use something else? Okay, we'll do that. Thank you, sir. A man of many gifts, including helping me out of tight spots. In the Nelson Study Bible, excuse me, this is the New Unger's Bible Dictionary, it says the whole of the Old Testament is to be looked upon as bearing a prophetic character. The idea underlying the whole development of these scriptures and the, the life dealt with therein is that of God's gracious manifestation of himself to men and the establishment of his kingdom on earth. This idea becomes more and more distinct and centralizes itself more and more fully in the person of the coming king, the Messiah. What the writer in that article is pointing out is that the Old Testament itself is prophetic in character, but as you move through the Old Testament, the content becomes more and more focused on a person, on a coming king who is called Messiah. Let me give you one example of this in a book that was written toward the end of the Old Testament revelational period, the book of Daniel. Uh, Daniel lived in the uh, 500s, the 400s, and, uh, or excuse me, the 500s early on, and some of the 600s. 
And this book that bears his name was written either during his lifetime by him or shortly thereafter reflecting upon some of the things that he said and taught. And Daniel, in the ninth chapter of his prophecy, has an amazing statement. I invite you to turn there with me. Daniel chapter 9. He is given an understanding regarding the future of his people, the Jews. And the angel says to him, or the Lord says to him, through the angel Gabriel, Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. And so Daniel is given this understanding that there is a period of time to be numbered 490, and we understand that to mean 490 years, for all of this to take place regarding the Jews. And then it goes on to say in verse 25, Know and understand this, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, notice the words, until the Messiah until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens, or sixty-nine sevens, 483 years. An amazing prophecy. It goes on to say, it will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. And after the sixty-two sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. And the people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and so on. Well, Daniel is given information here regarding two coming rulers. One of them will be a ruler who will destroy. We understand that ruler to be the yet-coming Antichrist. But he mentions also the Anointed One, the Messiah. And he says that from the time of the decree to allow for the rebuilding and the restoration of Jerusalem until the coming of the Messiah would be 483 years. And folks, that prophecy was literally fulfilled. That was the period of time. But notice how Daniel here is pointing toward a man, a coming ruler, the Messiah. There was an expectation of the Jews that one would come to deliver the nation of Israel from her oppressors. One who would restore the line to David's throne. A writer has said in Jewish thought the Messiah would be the king of the Jews, a political leader who would defeat their enemies and bring in a golden era of peace and prosperity. I'm going to take this microphone off so I can at least be a little more free. <clears throat> Notice that in Jewish thought there would be a political leader. They understood the Messiah to be primarily political. And in the centuries surrounding Jesus' lifetime, there was in fact a messianic fever among the Jews and the non-Jews as well due to the Jewish influence upon them in their cities. We observe this messianic fever, for example, in the Pseudepigrapha, a collection of writings 
of Jewish writings from the 300-year period surrounding Jesus' birth. In those writings, there is a key theme, and that theme is the Messianic age and the coming of a great ruler. We see it also suggested in some secular literature. For example, the writings of Virgil, the Latin poet who died in 19 B.C. By the way, that was the very year that King Herod began the building of the temple in Jerusalem that came to be known as Herod's Temple and was the temple in Jesus' day. Virgil died in the year that work began, but he wrote in his fourth eclogue of a child who would bring peace to the world. Now that pagan poet probably picked up that concept from the Jewish people who were in the city where he lived. You see, there was this expectation of a coming Messiah. But when he came, he was not what they expected him to be. They wanted a Messiah who would fulfill their agenda. But Jesus came to fulfill God's agenda. I come to do your will, O God, he said. Another writer has said, Jesus understood that the Messiah, God's anointed one, was to be the suffering servant. The fact that Jesus was a suffering Messiah, a crucified deliverer, was a stumbling block to many of the Jews. They saw the cross as a sign of Jesus' weakness, powerlessness and failure they rejected the idea of a crucified messiah of course the apostle paul in first corinthians makes it very clear that that message was a stumbling block to the jews and foolishness to the so-called wise gentiles this title of christ was not one that jesus frequently used of himself he chose other titles that were also messianic but not the title Christ and yet consider these words from Matthew chapter 26 the high priest said to Jesus I charge you under oath by the living God tell us if you are the Christ the Son of God he replied yes it is as you say but I say to all of you, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus understood exactly who he was. And when he was asked, are you the Christ? He said, yes. And they understood that because it was for blasphemy then that they claimed that they crucified him. Although Jesus did not use the title himself, Nonetheless, it is one that is clearly attributed to him in the Bible. The one who was born and laid in a manger, who was later crucified and who offered himself for our sins, was none other than Christ the Lord. Now, in Luke chapter 2, there are two significant statements using that word Christ that I want you to note. The first one is in the verse we've read that the one who the shepherds were invited to come and see was Christ the Lord. This is an unequivocal declaration of his deity. He is not merely Christ the coming ruler or Christ the babe. He is Christ the Lord. 
He is God. But let your eyes fall down a few more verses to verse 26, where regarding Simeon, Luke says this, It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. You see the difference in the way it's put? First it is Christ the Lord, now it is the Lord's Christ. It's a different statement that means something different. Here we have the unequivocal declaration of the distinction of Christ from the Father. He who is God is also God's Christ. And so we have a bridge into the truth of God's triunity. That in God's oneness, there are three persons. By looking into the Old Testament at the context of this name Christ, we will understand even more what its significance is for us. That context of the Old Testament speaks of Christ the Anointed One as having three offices. These offices align with the three offices for which the Jews anointed people. There were three of them. They were prophet and king and priest. Those are the same offices that the Anointed One, Christ, fills. And so my first point this morning is this, is that Jesus, who is Christ the Lord, is prophet. He is the prophet. I invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy in the 18th chapter. Deuteronomy chapter 18. Moses speaks to the people of Israel. And he says in verse 15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. You must listen to him. For this is what you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let us not hear the voice of the Lord our God, nor see this great fire anymore, or we will die. The Lord said to me, What they say is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command him. Moses, you see, foretells a coming prophet like him. And the Jews anticipated this prophet. I'm sure they did not fully understand all that it entailed, but they believed that there would come to them a prophet like Moses, who would deliver to them the pure words of God. We see this, for example, in the first chapter of the Gospel of John. I'd like you to turn there for a moment. John chapter 1, where I'll begin reading in verse 19. Now this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. 
Notice that. Well, if you're not the Christ, then you must be Elijah. No, I'm not Elijah. Well, are you the prophet? You see, they understood that a prophet was coming. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now, some of the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him. Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? So you see, even the Pharisees, the religious leaders, were looking for this prophet to come who would be like Moses. And consider with me the correlation between Moses and Christ. There are three of them. First of all, they both revealed God. They both revealed God. Moses revealed God through the law. Jesus, in fullness of grace and truth. Secondly, they both mediated a covenant. Moses mediated the covenant of law and established the priesthood of his brother Aaron and the sacrifices of the Old Testament. He delivered the Ten Commandments and the standards of God for personal morality as well as for civil behavior among the people of Israel. It was a covenant that was established by blood. But Jesus also established a covenant. A covenant based upon his own blood that was shed. It's called the New Covenant and it's a better covenant. But both of them mediated covenants. Third, they both delivered their people. Moses delivered the people of Israel from their bondage in Egypt and Jesus delivers his people from bondage to sin. So you see how Jesus is the prophet who is like Moses? However, having said that, it is important to realize that Jesus is greater than Moses. As the author of Hebrews states in the third chapter of that book, Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. You see, Moses was a part of the people of God. But Jesus was God who was calling a people to himself. And so as Christ, my first point is this, that Jesus holds the office of prophet. As prophet, he reveals God to man. He is the full and perfect expression of all that God is. He is the final and supreme revelation of God to humankind. The Apostle John puts it this way in the first chapter of his Gospel, verses 17 and 18. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God, but God the one and only who is at the Father's side has made him known. And so Jesus is the full revelation of God. He has led God who is invisible out into view so that we can see him in the person of Jesus' life and his words. He is the expounder of God to us. He is the prophet. And there is no prophet that is greater than Jesus Christ. And there is none in this sense who comes after him. He is the prophet. 
you and I live in a day in which we're being told that all religions of the world have some piece of the truth. That if you're a person who is a follower of Allah, a Muslim, that you're following God as you understand him and that's truth for you. And if you're a follower of Buddha, then you have a piece of the truth as well. And Christians, we have a piece of the truth. Everybody's got a piece. And in the end, if we just follow that truth that we have, we'll all come to the same God. My friend, that is a lie out of hell. That is a lie out of hell. Jesus Christ is the unique revelation of God. And no one comes to God except through him who is the prophet who has revealed God to us. He is Christ, the anointed prophet. Secondly, he is Christ who is potentate. He's the king. He is the powerful ruler whom God has appointed as sovereign over all of creation. There's a psalm that I want you to turn to that is a key messianic psalm written by David. It's number 110 in your hymn book. In your Psalter, that is. The book of Psalms. Number 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That is an oriental expression. Uh, kings who were conquerors would ceremonially put their feet upon the necks of those they had conquered. It meant that they were supreme, that they, had, that they were victorious. And so the Lord says to my Lord, David writes, sit here until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. This is a statement regarding the fact that Jesus Christ is the king, the potentate. Perhaps this psalm was written by David as a coronation song for his son Solomon, to whom he was about to hand over his kingdom. Whether or not that is true, we don't really know. What is true is that when David wrote it, the Holy Spirit was causing him to write about a greater descendant of his than Solomon. He was writing about his son, the Messiah, the Christ. Jesus understood this psalm to mean that he was indeed the Christ. In Matthew chapter 22, it says, While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They replied, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No 
father, who is the king, is going to call his descendant his lord. And yet that's exactly what David does. And it says no one could say a word in reply, and from that day on no one dared to ask him any more questions. In that context, they've been trying to trick Jesus in some questions. You don't trick the one who is wisdom incarnate. And he turned around and asked them a question that put them on the spot. They did not know how to answer this question. But his use of that psalm shows that he understood that psalm to refer to him, himself. This truth that Jesus the Christ is king is the bedrock of the apostles' faith. Jesus asked the question of his disciples, Who am I? Peter answered, You are the Christ the Son of the living God. Peter's understanding grew of that. And when he stood on Mount, on on Pentecost Sunday and preached, he said, God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, says Peter, And yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. You see, Peter understood that Psalm 110 referred to Jesus. And then he concludes by saying, Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ both Lord and Christ. He is Christ the Lord who is potentate. He is the ruler. And one day he will return to the earth and will deal with all of those opposing him and claim his rights to the throne of David. His scepter will be stretched out in Mount Zion as it says right here as he rules over the earth. In the book of Revelation, we have a view of that day when the seventh angel sounds his trumpet and the loud voices in heaven say, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. You see, as Christ, Jesus holds the office of potentate. And as the potentate, he reigns over all. There is nothing absolutely nothing that is outside the realm of his authority and reign. Even though we do not yet see all things subjected to him, they one day will be because God has already declared, sit at my right hand and one day I will cause all of your enemies to be a footstool under your feet. That's the Christ. Now, the third office for which the Jews anointed was the office of priest. And Jesus, as Christ the Lord, is also priest. He's the anointed priest. Notice in Psalm 110 that David's kingly son is also appointed and installed as priest. Look in verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever in the order of of Melchizedek the order of Melchizedek 
Now you remember, as I said before, there was a priesthood under the law. And its duties belonged to the sons of Aaron, who was of the tribe of Levi, the family of Levi, one of Jacob's sons. Let me ask you, is Jesus a Levite according to his birth? He is not. He is not a son of Levi. He cannot be a priest according to the old covenant, and he doesn't need to be, because he has a greater covenant that he's put into place. But Jesus is of the tribe of what? Of Judah, exactly. Christ is not a priest according to the law of Israel. Jesus is a priest according to a higher law. His duties are aligned with a superior order of priesthood, namely that of Melchizedek. You remember from the Old Testament, Genesis 14, that Melchizedek was a king-priest of ancient Salem. In the Bible, he has no record of lineage. There is no account of his death or his birth. He is thus made a picture or a type of an eternal priest, one who is forever in that office. He's a picture of that. And Christ now is a priest in his order. And it fits. It fits because Jesus is one who is eternal. He is appointed to a priesthood that is eternal. Hebrews chapter 7 follows up on this by saying, and what, have we, what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears. One who has become a priest not on the basis of regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is written, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath, but he became a priest with an oath. When God said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So the writer says, because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. The Lord Jesus Christ is priest. And he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede them. As Christ, he is priest, and as priest, he represents believers before God. You say, well, why does he need to do that? What is the purpose of his being a priest that appears before God on our behalf? The answer to that is very simple. He is there before God as an eternal demonstration of his adequacy in his once-for-all sacrifice for the sins of the saints. You see, Jesus will forever appear as the glorified Lamb of God in the New Jerusalem. The radiance from his own body will fill this massive planet, really, that's called a city. And he will bear the scars forever of his wounds. He will serve as a priest 
therefore, forever, telling all of creation, all of the redeemed, that what he did on the cross was adequate for our sins. He is the priest who offered up himself and then rose from the dead that he might represent all of us who come to God through him. In closing, I want to say three things regarding an application of these truths. That Jesus is Christ the Lord is in the first place truth that gains your salvation. For you see, if he were not Christ the Lord, he could not offer himself as a sufficient sacrifice for sin. One writer has said the message of the early church centered around the fact that the crucified and risen Jesus is the Christ. They proclaim the scandalous gospel of a crucified Messiah as the power and wisdom of God. John wrote, Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? You cannot know God except in Jesus Christ. You may be a sincere follower of some other religious leader or a guru, but I can tell you, you cannot ever know God except through Jesus Christ. He is the prophet. He is the sole revelation of God by which we may gain eternal life. It is because he is Christ the Lord that you can gain salvation because of who he is and what he has done for you. There's a second truth. That Jesus is Christ the Lord is truth that guards your future. That's truth that guards your future because he is the king who must and who will reign over an eternal kingdom. And by his authority, he is moving all of history and all of history's peoples toward their appointed ends. And because of who he is as Christ the Lord, the potentate, the king that God has installed, your future is absolutely guarded. There is nothing that can prevent you from being a part of the future reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there is a third truth. And that is that because Jesus is Christ the Lord, your protection is guaranteed. Your protection is guaranteed. He is a priest, as I said, who stands before God. You say, well, what if I fail? What if something comes into my life that, that causes me to really wander from God and, and I fail him and I fall into sin? You have a priest who stands before God on your behalf. Dear friend, we all fail to a greater or lesser extent every day, every day of our lives. And we need one who stands before God. There is our surety. There is our guarantee that we are kept safe in him. You and I do not have to fear what may happen tomorrow. We do not have to fear that maybe we will fail in the end. Jesus Christ stands before God as our intercessor and our high priest. And so your protection is guaranteed. As we make our way through the remainder of this very holy season of the year, 
I hope that this name of Christmas glory is one that will sparkle with new significance for your life. As you recognize that he is not Christ the babe, he is Christ the Lord who came as a babe. And because he is Christ the Lord, he is God's anointed prophet by whom we may come to know God. He is God's anointed potentate who will reign and who is moving all of history toward God's appointed future. And he is God's appointed priest who stands on our behalf to guarantee that one day we too will share in the glories of heaven because he is Christ. He is Christ, the anointed one. Let's pray together. We are called upon to surrender to him, to worship him, to receive him, that we might partake of the benefits of this name. Friend, have you received Christ as your Savior? Do you know him personally? Have you invited him into your life and trusted his sacrifice on the cross as the sufficient sacrifice for your sins? You cannot know God any other way. He said, No one comes to the Father but through me. Would you in this Christmas season receive him into your life? You don't have to do anything like join a church or be baptized or do good deeds. Those things are fine in themselves, but they gain you nothing in terms of a relationship with God. That relationship is gained by faith when you believe on Christ. Will you invite him into your life now? Allow your heart to be broken before him for your sins. Surrender yourself to him and receive him. It's not the words you say, it's the attitude of your heart. And those of us who have done that, is he Christ the Lord of our lives? Is he reigning on the throne of our lives now, even though he's not yet reigning on the throne that belongs to him in the world? Are you living a life of misery, laden with guilt over sins that Christ has paid for? Will you recognize that? He is your priest. He stands before God to guarantee your protection. Acknowledge your sin. Come back to him. Walk with him. Lord Jesus, help us to remember that you are the Christ and all that that means for us and for the world, for the universe. We worship you today. And we receive you. And we surrender to your Lordship as Christ. Help us to represent you well in this season. And as we visit with others and share our lives, may we share you, the most important part of our lives, and help others to see your reality. This we pray in your blessed name. Amen. Amen.